I've been asked to correct what may be a misunderstanding about the men's coaching clinic, which is scheduled for uh, this coming Saturday. This is not a clinic for athletes only. Some men called in and said, I'm too old to run faster and jump higher. I'm not interested in a coaching clinic. Uh, this is simply the uh, the term that we use for these clinics, which we offer a couple of times a year, which are essentially given to men in order to coach them in manhood. That's the purpose of them. We we call them coaching clinics. Uh, it's just a just a catchy title. It's for everyone. I'd like to encourage you to come. I have a warm spot in my heart for people that are in police enforcement. I have a police officer in my family. But uh, more than that, I just uh, appreciate these people very much. Bob Vernon will be here Friday night speaking to them and then Saturday speaking to our men. He will also be speaking here on, on Sunday morning, next Sunday. So you'll have an opportunity to hear him as well. Will you turn with me, please, to the 8th chapter of Joshua. And we will continue our assault of the city of Ai. Joshua chapter 8. This chapter revolves around two ideas. The first is the renewed conflict with I, verses 1 through 29. Verses 30 through 35 have to do with the renewed covenant at Mount Ebal. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. That's the note of assurance with which this battle was joined. And you shall do to Ai and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Which is interesting in in the light of the prohibition that uh, was given uh, with regard to looting Jericho. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. And he commanded them, saying, You are going to ambush the city from behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out to meet us, as at the first, that we will flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing before us, as at the first, so we will flee before them. And you shall rise from your ambush and take possessions, uh, take possession of the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Then it will be when you have seized the city that you shall set the city on fire. You shall do it according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them away, and they went to the place of ambush and remained between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. You recall what happened uh, in the first assault upon Ai. They were disastrously defeated. Ai was an insignificant, a very small garrison. 
of Canaanites, located on the main north-south route that ran through the land of Canaan, sort of the Interstate uh, 84 of that day. And since it was located in that strategic place, it had to be taken. The strategy of the Israeli army was to cut a wedge straight across the middle of the land of Canaan and divide the city-states to the north from the city-states to the south. And I was in their path. They had to take this uh, small, insignificant little enclave of of Canaanites. Uh, It would be somewhat like sending UCLA after uh, Columbia University's football team. And it was a disaster, as you know. They were routed. They were chased down the valley all the way to uh, the Jordan River. They not only lost the the ground that they had gained at Jericho, but they lost the lives of some of their fine young men. This was, as far as we know, the only loss of life in the entire campaign. And we're told why. The reason for the defeat was because there was an Achan in the camp, a man who had looted a house in Jericho and had taken a few articles, a little bit of silver, some gold, and a Babylonian garment, hid it under the dirt in his tent, and... He was the reason for the defeat. We talked about the principle that underlies that, that, uh, that text. Sin harbored, sin, covert sin that's covered up, that's not faced and judged and put away, will deeply affect the body of Christ. It will also affect us as individuals. Sin has to be faced. It has to be judged. It has to be dealt with. We cannot trivialize sin in our lives. Now, uh, having dealt with the situation, the Valley of Achor, the place of judgment, as we saw, became a door of hope. God's efforts are always redemptive. He is always reconstructive in his work. He wants to cleanse and purify and set us back to the task. And so uh, Joshua is recommissioned. And the army is commanded again to take, uh, take I. Now, I'm, I'm a little bit at sea about how this took place. And my impression as I read the commentators is that they don't know what's happening either. Uh, the, the text itself is fairly confusing. It's the habit of these uh, Semitic historians to give us an event first in overview and then in more detail. And I think that's what happened here. And as I reconstruct the second attack upon I, something like this occurred. Under cover of darkness, Joshua sent 5,000 men on the, to the west side of the city. The west side of I would be toward Bethel. There's a, a wooded area there, and, and perhaps uh, in the darkness uh, they hid behind rocks and they, they hid in the uh, olive groves. Uh, the people of I were unaware of their presence. Joshua and the main body of the army, 25,000 strong, encamped in front of the gates. The next morning, early in the morning, which is when battles took place in the ancient world, they assaulted the city, again, the 25,000 who were on the north side of the city, Joshua and the main body of, of, uh, of soldiers. They assaulted the city and then simulated a retreat. They turned on their heels, ran down the valley, the same canyon that they had uh, been uh, that they uh, that they had retreated through the in the day before a couple of days before the people of Ai streamed out of the city emptied the city there are no defenders left and the 5000 who were hidden in the uh, in the olive groves then came into the city set it on fire 
The people of Ai turned back, saw that their city was on fire, tried to return. The 5,000 who had set the city on fire streamed down into the canyon. The 25,000 turned, and they put the army of Ai into a sort of pincher movement in the, in, 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 in the canyon and destroyed the army. There were no survivors. Then, when, then they went back to Ai, and they raised and burned the city. The last uh, verse of this section Verse uh, 29, they raised over it a heap of stones that stands to this, uh, excuse me, verse 28. So Joshua burned I and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. Uh, interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, this city is always referred to as the I, I in Hebrew, which means the heap. Evidently, it was not rebuilt, at least not uh, within the lifetime of the author of this book. And even today, if you go to Israel, they'll point out a uh, barren, desolate, flat-topped hill, and it's called in Hebrew, Etel, the tell, the heap. It's still the pile of stones. So there's at least one monument still remaining today in, in Israel to, this, uh, to the defeat of this Canaanite uh, city. Now, that's the story, and it, it makes interesting history. It's fun to think about uh, the story, but what's the point? As I've said before, our task is to understand what God is saying to us in his word. If we don't understand it, our lives are failures. We have to know what God is saying to us. This is very serious business. We cannot merely read the Bible and pass on. We have to understand it. It's more than history, more than geography, this is, this is God's word to us. Now, what is God trying to say? Well, I think there's a principle enshrined in the text, and it's very, very important. It's simply this. Sin will dominate us, and we cannot gain new ground in our Christian life unless we go back to the sin that dominates us and deals with it. We cannot go on until we go back. Now, we saw that... Uh, in the story of Achan, in a corporate sense, the body of Christ has to deal with sin no matter how much it hurts. The same is true as individuals. Now, now let, me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. All of us have some things in our lives that we don't like. There are things that annoy us, that bug us. Little irritating habits and habitual patterns that get us crosswise with people and and hurt our, our, uh, our relationships, and hurt us vocationally, and, and they bother us. Uh, perhaps it's a hair-trigger temper. I can identify with that. The tendency to blow at all the wrong times. Or maybe it's a tendency to talk too much. Some people never listen. They always talk. As Bob Cosby says, turbo tongues. <laughs> and... Uh, they, you know, this is the kind of person who, you know, you're coming home from a social occasion and you say to your spouse, oh, I did it again, I talked too much. And there's a stony silence. And uh, you, you, you're damned by the silence, you know. You, you know, you know that it's true. You've done it again. And it just annoys you immensely. But you can't seem to get a handle on this thing. You can't, you can't rid, get yourself rid of it dominates you, masters your life. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray over this thing, and nothing happens. What's gone wrong? Well, it may be that God is saying, that annoys you. But there is something else in your life that alarms me 
more. And it's that issue that I want to put my finger on. Perhaps it's an unforgiving spirit. Perhaps there's someone in your past who wronged you terribly, an ex-spouse or your father or one of your children, and you cannot turn that thing loose. You just cannot forgive them. And God is saying to, to you in that loving, gracious, gentle way that he has, let's deal with that issue. Let's talk about that matter. Now, as I've said before, we know what those what those issues are. We know. No one has to tell us. When God speaks to us, he speaks unequivocally. He puts his finger right on the issue in our lives. The vague feelings of guilt, as I've said before, come from the evil one. But those precise, specific feelings of guilt over sin are the finger of God. We know when we've transgressed. We know. We feel it. And that's what God wants to deal with. And until we go back and deal with that issue, we can never go on. We can't conquer any more of the land. That sin is the reason for defeat in other areas of our life. Perhaps for you men, and here I want to get real personal, it is that for you the bottom line is the bottom line. In other words, you believe that life consists of making money. That's the chief end of man, is to make money and make a great deal of it and retire in style. Now, that's what the Bible calls the love of money. We say, oh, no, that's not loving money. Well, yes, it is. If we are preoccupied with money, if we were thinking about money all the time, if we're obsessed with the idea of making more of it, if every waking thought is given over to scheming and planning and conniving and trying to make money, we love the stuff. And the problem with loving money, the hurt in it, is not that the pleasure is not real, because there is an immense amount of pleasure in making money and spending it. Nor is the hurt in the fact that uh, the pleasure is short-lived, because that will drive us back to God. The hurt is in the fact that if we love money, we will take leave of God. That's the seriousness of it. It's not even that we deprive the poor of their rights. That's not it. The Bible never puts it on that basis. The problem with loving money is what it does to us. Jesus put it on the line when he said, if you love money, you'll hate God. If you love God, you'll, you'll put money to its, means, to its proper use. Money will become for you nothing more than a means to the end. But if you love money, God will become the means to the end, and after a while he will become meaningless. And then we will, we will find ourselves light years away from God, and we will become like our money. Rust, ridden, moth-eaten, our souls riddled with care. And that's when, as someone has said, mammon becomes hell. God has saw it all along. We see it and we begin to feel it. And God does not want that to happen to us. To me, one of the most significant statements in the New Testament about wealth is that when the rich young man walked away from Jesus, when he made that tragic choice to go for money instead of God, Jesus looked at him and he was terribly, terribly sad because he knew what it would do to the young man. You see, that, that's why God wants to deal with that sin in our life, gentlemen. It, it, it's, it's not 
Because there's anything wrong with money per se, it's because God knows that if we love money, we will end up hating God. It's just that simple. And he knows what that does to our soul. It will erode away our soul until we are empty, utterly empty. And he will do anything he can to deliver us. I say it to myself. I say it to, to, to the, you other men here in the congregation. It's an issue we've got to deal with. Whatever it is. Whatever it is that God is putting his finger on, we must deal with it. It's like traveling down a road with many forks. Take the wrong fork, continues to fork. The only way to get back on the track is to go back to the point where you, where you, you got off the road. You cannot get to your destination by going on. You have to go back. It's like working a mathematical problem. If you, if you find you've made a mistake, you have to go back to the point of the error and correct it. And that's what the story of the conquest of I is saying to us. The reason we de- are defeated in areas of our life is because there's some issue in our life that we have not dealt with and we have to go back. We have to go back and deal with it. And then when we judge that sin and put it away, we can go on. You see, God wants to spare us from all the hurt and pain that comes from, from living a, a misguided, a, a disoriented life. Now, uh, that's the story of I. We're not going to uh, take any more time on the conquest of I. It's a fairly straightforward story. You can read it for yourself. I would rather go on to the next section, verses 30 through 35. The Renewed Covenant. At Mount Ebal. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of, of Moses, an altar of uncut stones. If you go back to Deuteronomy 27, you'll see the original uh, prescription there. The order was given to go to Mount Ebal, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim in one of Moses' last sermons, and they were instructed to build an altar of uncut stones, and they were to rejoice there. This was not a grim occasion. It was an occasion for eating and drinking and, and rejoicing over, over past victories and the promises of God that lay ahead. You're to make an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and uh, they, they offered up burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. The burnt offerings were the offerings that were wholly consumed. Uh, Israel was given a number of offerings in the, in the law, and one was the hola, it was called. Our word holocaust comes from it, from it. It's the burnt offering in which the entire animal was consumed. And then also they were to celebrate peace offerings there. That was, that was the offering that was partially consumed, and then the worshipers consumed the rest of it. In other words, they participated in these sacrifices. All of these sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, and in fact all of them going back to uh, Abel's sacrifice, speak to us of our Lord Jesus, who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They speak prophetically of his coming. Abraham, almost on this very same site, built his little altar, and he worshipped there. And Jacob worshipped on the site that we're referring to here, and the other patriarchs. And then when the law was given... These sacrifices were further codified, and, and they all speak of Christ. His sacrifice for us and our participation in the sacrifice that, that he made. So they, they gathered around the altar, and 
The ark was there, which was the, which represented the presence of God in their midst, and they offered sacrifices, and they ate the fellowship offerings. And then Joshua wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. He, he took some large flat stones and set them upon end and whitewashed them in, in the Egyptian custom, and they wrote the, uh, the law. On those stones, it's really moot whether they wrote the entire law or the Decalogue or the the curses and blessings. It doesn't really matter. Large portions of, in fact, all of the Pentateuch could have been written on these laws, but they were there where everyone could read them, where the Canaanites could see them, and where the Israelites could read them. And all Israel, with their elders and officers and their judges, were standing on both sides of the ark. They were centering on God. Before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the cursing, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers, that is, the Canaanites and the other non-Israelites who were dwelling among them, those that had been, who were outsiders, who had been brought in from the, from the cold. Uh, Mount uh, Ebal is uh, about 12 or 15 miles to the north of uh, Little Ai, the city of Ai. Uh, Mount Ebal juts up out of the surrounding landscape. It's uh, just a big mound of rock, about 1,500 feet high. Very, It's barren, desolate, not a, hardly a, tr- a tree or bit of vegetation on its suitable place from which to announce the curses. Mount Gerizim, which is just a little bit to the, uh, to the west and to the south, is, is similar in size. And uh, in Joshua's day, and even today, it's much more heavily uh, uh, covered with trees, much more foliage there. The two mountains form a sort of amphitheater. Uh, And even today, they tell me, I've not tried this, but they tell me that if you stand on the slopes of Mount Ebal and talk in a fairly loud voice, you can be heard on the other side of, of the valley. The acoustics are very good. So... Israel gathered there in this natural amphitheater. And on Mount Ebal, which is the mountain to the north, they uh, built this altar of uncut stones and surrounded it with, uh, with the law written on these tablets, whitewashed tablets. Now, several things occur to me as I, as I think about this incident. The first is that the first order of business for Israel was to take time for God and the Word. This is the last thing I would have done if I'd been in charge of this campaign. We know from the chapters that follow that five Canaanite cities were forming a confederation. Uh, They were about 20 or 25 miles to the south, and they were getting ready to invade uh, the army of Israel. And just to the north was this enormous city of Hatzor, a heavily fortified city, and they were preparing their defenses. This was not a time to... To, to stop and to worship and to read the word. This was a time for action. Uh, this was a time to build a fortress, if nothing, if nothing else. But God says, no, the first thing I want you to do, first order of business, the most important thing of all, 
is to take time for me, to worship me, to center on me, to express your devotion to me, and, and, and to read my word. These are the things that, that really matter. This is not the time to attack. This is the time to get in touch with God. Because God knows that's our, that's our fundamental need. Our need is not for speed, jet pilots notwithstanding. Our need is not for security. Our basic human fundamental need is not for sex. It's not for food. Our basic need is for God. My goodness, how many times have I said that? How hard it is to believe that. How easy it is for us to believe that something else other than God will satisfy us. Animals can be satisfied by mating and eating. We can't. We can't. Because there is in all of us this God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. There is a lonely place that only God can satisfy. And that's why making money and making love and making friends in the end, does not satisfy. I don't care how much you acquire. As Jesus once put it, a man's life does not consist in an abundance of, of things. And, and that's why Joshua was told to go back to the, to the beginning, go back to the place where they worship, where they could worship, where they could center around God. Because battle is done from that point. We go into that secret place within to meet God, and then we go out to do battle. Mother Teresa was right. Spend one hour a day in devotion to Christ, and you'll be all right. I've quoted her before. I don't agree with everything Mother Teresa has said. I don't agree with everything I say. But <laughs> that's something I agree with. It doesn't even have to be an hour. But the point is we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to the thing that we were created for. We have to go back in our hearts into that secret sanctuary that God has placed in our heart and worship God there, and it's out of that place that we go out to do battle. One hour a day in devotion to Christ. And I don't mean that in a legalistic sense. It's not an hour a day keeps the devil away. It's simply a matter of knowing God, loving God, devoting ourselves to him, getting in touch with him, letting him speak to us, and it's from that point of refuge that we go out to do battle. Do you realize that the, that the chief purpose of man is not even to combat and defeat sin? The, the, the goal of our life is not even righteousness per se. That's a, that's a byproduct. The purpose of life is to know God and to love him. And then he teaches us how to do battle. So we, we have to spend time getting in touch with God. I, I was struck as I read about this altar, an altar of uncut stones, and it made me rethink this whole issue. Why? Why were they to make an altar of uncut stones? Well, the obvious answer is that this was to be a non-Canaanite altar. The Canaanites dressed their stones. They made uh, these beautiful rectangular blocks. You can see them all over, all over Israel and, and in museums, the ashlar blocks with the uh, dressed sides. They, 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 they made permanent places of worship. That's the point. 
And certainly we can say that this worship was to be non-Canaanite. They were to worship the Lord God of Israel and not Baal and the Ashtaroth. But I, I don't think that's the point. It, the thing, it strikes me as I think back over the patriarchal period that wherever Abraham and Isaac and Jacob went, they just grabbed some stones and they built a little altar. They, they didn't have, their worship was not static. It, it wasn't local. It, it was, they worshiped everywhere they were. Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees and he came down into the land of Canaan and he, and he, and he was close to this spot near Ai, between Ai and Bethel. And, and he looked up, and there was a, an oak there where the, where the Canaanites worshipped. And, and we're told in the text that Abraham got some rocks, and he built himself a little altar. And he began to worship God over here off to the side of the, of the Canaanite temple. And then he went on down to Beersheba, or Hebron, and he got some rocks, just picked up some plain old field stones, and he built himself a little altar, and he offered himself up to God. Then he went down to Beersheba and he did the same thing. And when Jacob came into the land after sojourning in Haran, he came to this very same spot here at the foot of Mount Gerizim and he piled a little bunch of rocks up and he worshipped. The point is you can worship God anywhere. Anywhere. It can be at your sink or at your desk or in your car. It can be a high school student on your way to take a physics test and you you know you don't know quite how to handle this thing and you're worried or... Or you have to face some very strong peer pressure at school not to do dope or something else. And you, on you, while you're in your car, you just, in your mind, you just pile up a bunch of rocks and you just, just worship God right where you are. And you find your strength in Him. It can be on your workbench or somewhere on your ranch or, or, or wherever you are. Wherever you are, you can, you can put together a little, little pile of stones in your, in your mind and, and you can offer yourself up to God. A uh, number of years ago, I uh, uh, I was in in Israel, and a bunch of us sat on the flanks of Mount Ebal. And I I looked down, and I realized for the first time that from Mount Ebal you could look down to Jacob's well. When Jacob came in into that locality, he dug a well. We're told, and it. It dawned on me that that was the well where Jesus met the woman of Samaria. She was sitting right there by that well. And I was struck by the fact that you, you could see it from, from there. We were, I don't know where the altar was that, that uh, Joshua built, but I realized that you, we could, from that locality, we could see the, the well of Jacob. And, and that whole story ran through my mind. John says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because Jews normally didn't, didn't travel through Samaria. They didn't like Samaritans. Samaritans were members of a cult, kind of quasi-Jewish cult, believed all sorts of weird things. They discarded the Pentateuch and had built their own version of the temple up on Mount Gerizim. It was destroyed by the time Jesus came through. It had been destroyed about 150 years before, but the foundations were still there. And, and John says Jesus had to go there. He had to. Why? Because he had a divine appointment. The Father sent him there. There was a woman, young woman, that he had to meet. This dear woman came out, worn and weary and jaded, been through five husbands, living with a man who wasn't her husband. She's sitting by the well. Jesus says, will, will you give me a drink? She reacted as, as oppressed uh, people, people that are, uh, dis, that are often the objects of uh, discrimination, Act. She was rather testy and defensive. She said, 
how come you, a, a Jew, asked me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? And Jesus said, if you just, oh, dear woman, if you just knew what God wants to give you and who it is that's speaking to you, you would ask me and I'd give you living water. She said, are you greater than our father Jacob who dug this well? How can you give us water? And uh, Jesus answered, I want to read his, his words. He said to her, Anyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He could have said to her what Jeremiah said to Israel years before. You have dug out empty cisterns and you've forsaken the well of living water. She, she was a woman that tried it all. And our Lord was saying, the thing to do is to come back to the one who's the source of life. That happened right here at Shechem, at the foot of Mount Gerizim, on the flanks of Mount Ebal. And it signifies precisely what that altar signified in Joshua's day. The only way, the only way we're going to find ourselves and be what God intends us to be is to find the source of our life and God, put our roots down into him. To worship him in spirit and truth. That's exactly what Jesus... Remember the woman said, Oh, you must be a theologian. Our fathers worshipped up here. And she pointed to the top of Mount Gerizim where this ruined temple, the Maccabees had destroyed it years before. And Jesus said to her, Dear woman, it really doesn't matter where you worship. You can worship here or there. Anywhere. You can take your little pile of stones and put them up anywhere. God wants you to worship him in spirit, that is, in the inner man, and in truth, and in reality. Takes us right back to Joshua. That's what Joshua is proclaiming. Worship him. Worship him. That's the secret of success. That's how you do battle in the land. And then there's one other thing that they did. They read the word. Uh, most, Believe it or not, most people were literate back then. They all read the word. The men read the word. Uh, the women read the word, which was interesting to me. They didn't have to depend on their men to teach them. God did not consider them disciplettes. They were, sure enough, grown up, honest to goodness, mature uh, believers. And the little ones, wonderful little ones. That ought to gladden the heart of all you Sunday school teachers. They got the little kids there in front of the front of the uh, stones and they read it off to them if they couldn't read and the strangers like Rahab and, and, and the others that had come in from the outside that had been Canaanites you know several of the Psalms are written by a man who's called an Ezraite the, the, in Hebrew the word Ezraite means an aborigine they're Canaanites they came over into Israel came to love the Lord God of, of Israel they gathered around the the tablets, and they, they read the word, and they had the words read to them. Like Billy Graham says, as he holds up his black Bible, everybody ought to have a red Bible, he says, by which he means a Bible that's read, R-E-A-D. I, I remember in seminary, uh, Dr. Jack Mitchell, bless his soul, uh, he, he, was, uh, he was an elderly gentleman back when I was in seminary, and it was a long time ago. And he used to give the special Bible lectures every year, and I can remember sitting in chapel. And he'd look out over 12, 1,300 young theological students, many of them doctoral students, these guys, 
knew the word. They read everything and forgot nothing. And, and he'd look at him and he'd say, don't you guys ever read the Bible? And he'd all, I just, he would shish kebab me every time. Because I, you know, I, I, I read theology books and I, you know, but I, I just never got around to reading the Bible. And if I did, it was always to prepare for some course. And I honestly have to say that sometimes I believe that my ministry is the greatest enemy of my ministry. Because I teach about three or four times a week, and I'm always studying the Word, and I get up in the morning. I'm a morning person, and I get up in the morning, and I start hitting the books because I have to get ready to say something in a few hours or, or a couple of days. And I don't take time to read the Word to feed my own soul. And after a while, I'm just studying in order to tell somebody else what I've learned. And as George MacDonald says, not all reading of the Bible is reading of the Word. He's right. He's right. We need to read the Word in order to feed our own souls, to let, let our Lord speak to us, to think His thoughts after Him. Paul says, we apostles have the mind of Christ. What did he mean? Well, when the apostles write, when they speak, and when they write, they express the mind of Christ. And we need to let our Lord speak to us. We need to, we need to listen to Him. I, I was digging through my father's library. My father passed away, as you know, in July. And he has this enormous library. And I uh, was looking through it. He has some old, old commentaries. And uh, one, one commentator was referring, in referring to another passage about the importance of spending time in the Word. Put it this way. Do not begin the day by reading the newspaper. That would make you the slave of public opinion, even though involuntarily. Rather, begin your daily labors waiting for the dawn in prayer, as the psalmist suggests to you, and read his word. A lot of sense in that. I think there's a natural order to things. As someone has pointed out, it's thought and labor and sleep. We ought to give God the best time of the day, the time when we're most alert, get up in the morning, feed our souls from the Word, look through the Word to see our Lord Jesus, and then we can go out and work. And then we can come home and sleep. And then we can get up in the morning fresh again and, and get, get another vision of our Lord. That's, that's the natural order, it seems to me. I'm not saying that legalistically. You understand that. You know me better than that. It, it, it's not a matter of just spending X number of hours in the Word. It's, it's a matter of taking time to fill our souls before we enter into, into conflict. One last word. When Paul was leaving the Ephesian elders, he said to them, I'm never going to see you again. And he didn't. He was executed shortly afterward, a few years afterward. Never made it back to Ephesus. But he said, I ha- it doesn't matter that I'm not going to see you again. I have left behind the two things that matter more than anything else in the world. I come in to you. God and the word of his grace. And then he left them. And every time I read those words, every time I think of those words, it reminds me that that's the purpose of ministry. That's what I hope we're doing here in Cold Church. The buildings are irrelevant. The programs, you know, the wheels are going to fall off of all of them someday. Yeah, it doesn't matter. What really matters is that you walk away from these times of, of fellowshipping around the facts with two things. One, a love for God and a love for his word. And if you have those things, then you can engage in the battle 
you can face the foe, you can, you can begin to walk on with God. And so I would say with Paul, and I hope you see that these are the, the issues. The, 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 this is what this text centers upon. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those that are set apart to do God's will. Let's pray. As we pray, I'm going to ask the men to come forward. We want to worship around the Lord's table this morning. And as, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11, we must take this opportunity to judge ourselves. We must take a good hard look at our lives, at those issues which God is, has brought to our attention and and be willing to deal with them. And then we need to center on our Lord. This is a time of worship. It's easy to see this simply as ritual. But but this is reality. This is the symbol that speaks to us of our Lord's death. This is the reason we gather. This is the, the reason we center around him. It's because of the mercies of God that, that we worship him. We love him. Because he first loved us. And so let's take this occasion as we, uh, as we distribute the elements and as we take them together as, as a time of, of centering our thoughts on him, worshiping him in spirit and in truth.